Welcome. We are the Knights of Jeffa. I'm Tilted Isa. I'm Gaddy. And I'm Tyler. And this is another podcasting substrand from the whole Jaffa Cakes of Proust thing. Every time people like what we're doing and say, hey, give us more of that, we go, hey, you know, even better than that, how about something completely different? Now, back on Jaffa Cakes of Proust, which if you're listening to this, this is where this all comes from. Actually, no, this all comes from the sitcom club. First, there was a sitcom club. We talked about British sitcoms. Then there was Jaffa Cakes of Proust, which we talked about things other than sitcoms in the same way that we talked about sitcoms. Then there's Jafferville, but we'll just let that pass for the moment. We have discussed Doctor Who in the past, and I thought even though it's a very crowded marketplace, there was just something about the approach we were taking in our other podcast that I thought we could probably take that approach to Doctor Who and maybe say something that if it hasn't been said before, isn't at least as said as often as other things are said about Doctor Who. And we're taking as our focus... Season 2. That's it. Season 2. That's all we're watching. I'm here as resident Doctor Who expert. Not necessarily because I'm a Doctor Who expert compared to even the average Doctor Who fan, but compared to the two guys with me, I am the fount of all Doctor Who knowledge. Gary, what's your past with Doctor Who? I have no past with Doctor Who. I don't know why I'm here. I am hugely the weak link in this arrangement. If this was free of a kind, well, you know which one I am. But anyway, the point is that I got introduced to Doctor Who via Jaffa Cakes for Proust. I've not seen any of modern Who at all, but in the course of the podcast in previous years, then I think you got me started watching on sort of Hartnell and, and Trout and what have you. And to begin with, initially, I was watching Pathfinders with yourself which of course is like the sort of the ITV prequel to all this. Was prequel, is that the right word? Predecessor. Um, Forefather. A quick little nod, just in case, just in case there's any chance that somebody listening to a Doctor Who podcast isn't intimately familiar with Pathfinders from Space. And if you're not, you really have no excuse. Pathfinders from Space, children's serial produced by ABC Television for the ITV network, co-written by Malcolm Hulk, produced by Sidney Newman, runs for four series, three of which exist, and only three of which are called Pathfinders, but Pathfinders in, in Space was a sequel to something called Operation Luna. By the end of the Pathfinder saga, the setup is there's a man who you can tell kind of thinks he's a bit of a dish, and he's there for the action. There's a woman, and she's got a nice sort of motherly, sensible older sister quality. There are two children, uh, so they can get in trouble and also ask questions. And there's an old man who cannot be entirely trusted. So it's a really good way of getting in to Doctor Who or finding out about it. Because once you've watched all of that, then you go to an unearthly child. It's Suddenly it's like, well, this is not the big, massive leap in imagination that it might initially appear to be. And Tyler, we're trusting you to have absolutely zero knowledge of Doctor Who apart from what we reveal to you. Do you have any past with the programme? Uh, no. I possibly watched a couple of Tom Baker episodes back in the late 70s when I was four or five. I seem to remember that, but that's all. I've always had a bit of a tin ear for fantasy television, sci-fi on television. I know that Doctor Who shouldn't be just dismissed as, as sci-fi. Listening to you guys on your Jaffa Cakes Doctor Who episodes, I know there's been the adventure stories and the historical stories. But I jotted down 
before we watched this story, I jotted down just the things that I knew or thought I knew about Doctor Who. Aside from, you know, the obvious things that everybody knows, I just jotted down a list of what I know about Doctor Who or things pertaining to Doctor Who. And I'll just quickly run through that. Um, so the first episode went out the day Kennedy was assassinated. It's actually the day after. Day after. Well, there you go. First wrong information there. Actually, though, getting things wrong about John F. Kennedy does qualify you to present a professionally made documentary on BBC Radio. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm sorry, sorry. It's once tried to listen, the very first thing said on the programme was wrong. Oh, right. And I have never shut up about it since. He was not the youngest president ever. He was the youngest president elected. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and, and right, and I know that Michael Gray axed it in 89. That was Jonathan Powell, actually. Because I wasn't sure which one of us wants to buzz in at this point. Well, Grade was, he was at Channel 4 by then, wasn't he? Yeah, Grade was away. Well, hang on. Well, what, on uh, well, hang on. Yeah. I, I always thought Michael Grade was the one that caused the axe to fall. Oh, he was the one who started the process. But by the time the axe fell, he was gone. Right. The first two points are both are wrong. I'll just plough on then. Uh, I know John Pertwee drove a yellow car called Bessie, I think. Uh, Roger Delgado was the master. K9 had a spin-off series, which I did watch when I was a kid. And I think I quite enjoyed it. There was a story called The Sea Devils. I know there was some business in the 90s with a McGann and, and I think Rowan Atkinson. From my brief viewings back when I was very, very young, I think there was a companion called Adric who wore a yellow tunic. And a hooli hooli skirt. <laughs> I know that the Daleks turned up in a pretty questionable sketch on Milligan's Q series. And I don't know where I picked this up from, but Patrick Troughton, I believe he used to like to take a leak on golf courses. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think I really need to point out that might be more personal information about Patrick Troughton. That said, if any more missing episodes do finally turn up, can I just say that for everybody involved in the final day of the Open Championship in 1984, it's, that's not an afternoon they're going to forget. What was that televised competition where Terry Wogan scored a hole in one? Now, hang on a second, because I have no recollection of Terry Wogan scoring a hole in one, but Ronnie Corbett almost scored a hole in one on one occasion. But I'm holding judgment on Wogan because that, that's possible. <laughs> that's pretty much the uh, the sum total. Anyone with a like myself, with even a passing interest in old television, is going to know the basic stuff, the, you know, who played the Doctors, the name of the big blue things, the TARDIS. You know, I know all that, but yeah, I'm very much coming at this as a, as a newbie. Well, you were broadly correct in most of your information. <laughs> thank, thank you, teacher. So when's the book coming out? <laughs> so we started by watching all three episodes of the four-part serial Planet of Giants? <laughs> I can't do the whistle. I've been working, I have genuinely been working on it before we started recording. And I did it once and I've never managed to do it again. Because that is what I think of. When I think of this particular show, there are other things to talk about. There is context. But the main thing I think about is the whistling teeth of the character Pharaoh, played by Frank Crawshaw. Uh, can I just chip in, but we have got some breaking news as we record this. In 1981, Terry Wogan set the world record, as was then, for the longest successful golf putt ever televised, 33 yards at the Glen Eagles Golf Course and a pro-celebrity TV programme on the BBC. There you go. And Patrick Trouton was nowhere to be seen. 
No, he was. <laughs> <laughs> Even he stopped what he was doing. <laughs> Normally, I thank you for taking notes, Tyler, but you could have missed that one out. It's going to cast a shadow on the entire... Sorry. <laughs> Don't edit that one out. Edit out the... So Planet of Giants embodies, I think, the original vision for Doctor Who when it was developed and commissioned by Sidney Newman. In fact, the initial plan was that after the first episode, the first thing they would do was get shrunk down to small size. And that was a story, I believe it was called The Minuscules. There were a few different attempts at this idea. One of them was called The Minuscules, and there was going to be a story that would have seen them immediately back in Coal Hill School, but shrunk down. So something that was always there, and it was kind of there to be an educational thing that was meant to be a solid educational basis, as we all know that kind of fell apart with the second story. But it's another reason I picked season two, because season two starts so solidly in the original idea, and as we watch these serials, we'll see it ebb and flow and then become something completely other. This is the point when Sidney Newman's Doctor Who moves over to the Doctor Who of the popular imagination. That's what I'm going to say. Anything strike you about this, Tyler? Just what struck you about uh, watching this, at this show that you've heard of, had little tiny encounters with, but now you're actually sitting down and watching as an adult. I was actually very surprised in a good way. It possibly was the best story to kind of ease me in, in the sense that oh, I was going to say there wasn't anything particularly fantastical about it. There certainly wasn't anything in space as such. There was obviously a lot of fantastical elements in terms of the concept, but it had, it had a very B-movie vibe to it. But again, you know, there's some great B-movies out there. And the whole conceit that they had due to uh, the doors not opening before they properly materialized, so that meant the space pressure got too great and they reduced in size. And that was pretty much the conceit. I just found that the sets were great, the props were great. The story meandered. A little bit, but I didn't. I've never found that a problem, and it was it was very easy to sort of latch on to the characters, get to know the characters. Uh, so no, I, I was as I say, I was very pleasantly surprised by it. You say the story me ended. I actually watched. There's a reconstruction on the DVD of the four part version. This was originally meant to be a four part story. It was felt to be not necessarily the strongest way of launching the second series and they would rather have had the second story first. I don't know why the scheduling happened like it did, because this is actually recorded as part of the first recording block. So this is recorded months before it gets transmitted. But episodes three and four, they really do meander. There's just a lot about how they're going to dispose of Pharaoh's body and the cover story. Because doesn't he state he's going like on a tour of the... The French lakes. Rivers of France yeah. or the bridges of Madison County. Or he's going to stock up on French postcards. Well, that's one thing I didn't quite understand in the sense that he tells Forrester that he's off on a two-week holiday <laughs> around the French lakes on his own, on a boat. <laughs> what do we say about lack of fantastical elements? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the worst one of the lot. I don't like you, sir. I, I think you're involved in an enterprise which is Shady. Uh, by the way, I don't know. You know, if you want to know, my Instagram is. <laughs> you just slide into my DMs anytime. 
And I think Forrester said after to Smithers later um, that they would contrive to make it appear that Farrow had drowned, which is all very well, but drowned and then shot? Obviously, he fell in, uh, he drowned, and then he was shot by a herring. (laughs) I would have said mackerel, but that has dirty connotations. (laughs) Isn't this what happened to Dirty Den? He fell into a canal and was shot in the canal. Yeah. Well, in in some sort of order. There's all kinds of stuff gets chucked in canals, doesn't there, I suppose? You know, right, there's the brass bedstead, there's the bicycle wheel. I might as well just uh, empty my Smith and Wesson into it. Bang, 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 <laughs> bang, bang, bang. I suppose I could have just taken out the clip, really, but, uh, well, you can't live in the past. <laughs> but I would like to assume the position of the not disinterested, I'm not going to go that far, but I'm going to say that I am basically the man of the house who has just finished watching Grandstand, and then this thing comes on, it's the mid-1960s, so you haven't got a vast amount of choice in your viewing. So I'm going to look at this from afar, right? I'm not going to be sort of giving it my entire attention. I've got the Saturday pink you know, newspaper with the football results and what have you, which I'm browsing. But this thing's on in the corner and the kids are watching condition. it. No, that's what they called it, the, the Saturday pink. You must have had a Saturday pink in your area, surely. That's what it's it called. what I've been doing on Friday night, didn't it? <laughs> Well, having said that, the, the Evening Times in Glasgow actually wasn't pink on a Saturday night. But in many localities, the Saturday evening newspaper was known as a pink because you know, it was pink, like the Financial Times, and it had the football results in it. So I'm browsing that, okay, and I'm puffing away on my pipe. But the kids are watching this Doctor Who thing, and so I'm going to see it in a way. So I'm going to occasionally chip in with observations. The first one being, yeah, this did seem like quite a strong opener, and there was no faffing about on space and what have you. And also, Hartnell is really engaging. I think you mentioned Tilt before about how he's sort of getting into the role in the first series by this series, by this point in the recording block. I think you said before about there's a point where you can see that he knows he's never going to have to play an army major ever again. And by this point, he's very endearing in the role. And um, I can see that William Hartnell would have mass appeal going beyond the target audience, but people who've seen him obviously in films, seen him in programs like the Army Game, or instantly know who he is. So that's just like a nice welcome into the series immediately. Yeah, my knowledge of Hartnell, because uh, I'd never seen Hartnell as the Doctor, um, he'd always been playing either officious types or disreputable sorts. Oh, he's very good at slimy villainy. Oh, you should definitely, if you haven't, see appointment with crime. He's just lizard-eyed. Oh, so mean. Similar in Hell Drivers as well. He's more of a coward in that, though, isn't he? He is towards the end, yeah. yeah. Hartnell is the Doctor. He's definitely got a strong whiff of the 19th century about him. He comes across as a little bit irascible, a little bit tetchy at times, a bit detached as well from what's going on sometimes. And he sort of veers towards being impish, eccentric. He strikes me as being like one of those Victorian gentlemen of independent means whose entire household was powered by hydroelectricity. Slightly eccentric, but modern thinking or forward thinking types. Yes, in some ways, the Doctor is a stock character. And I think as the show goes on, and certainly as it stops being on television and it starts to develop its own little fan world, so that fans of Doctor Who are in charge of the destiny of the 
franchise, if you'll excuse the word, I think some people start to develop a bit of a inferiority complex about the idea of the Doctor as Victorian eccentric and sees that as kind of cramping their style. It's interesting that when it comes back the second time in 2005, it's Christopher Eccleston, Salford accent, uh, leather jacket, <laughs> and looking, uh, as, as a friend once said, like a Doncaster Rovers fan. <laughs> and I think that really lost something. I quite like the, not necessarily Victorian, but the old-fashioned boffin type. Boffins, maybe it's a misused term, maybe it's the wrong one to use. Uh, I, I kind of picked that up from uh, a blogger called Andrew Rilston, who blogs a lot about Doctor Who as well as Spider-Man and God and Star Wars. Spider-Man and God. And he said that the Doctor is essential. Yeah, yeah, you, you might have heard of him. You might know some of his work. Anyway, and he says the Doctor is essentially a boffin. He's got a lot of education. He can put something together that just about works, but isn't necessarily going to last very long or be nice to look at. He can get you out of a situation by making something by using his acquired knowledge and expertise. But he's not slick, so there should be a slightly unworldly quality, but it's the unworldly quality of the very educated person. A while ago we were watching something, we started talking about the Oxford mentality and the Cambridge mentality, as I've understood it, as somebody said it to me, and basically how it related to Monty Python, which is Cleason Chapman, there's a sort of aggressive quality very tall, clever people being very angry, and the, the Oxford quality from Perlin and Jones, which is much more, oh yes, come in, I've been reading these accounts of medieval buttery, and I found something very interesting that bubbling over with a desire to share. So the other characters, Tyler, let's start with Susan. Easily perturbed by things, and she's a little bit shrill, but she seems uh, feisty enough as well when she needs to be. I don't think Susan ever got handled properly by the show. And it would be interesting to watch the show from the beginning. And it would be wonderful if Marco Polo, the story, got found. So we could just really get a full sense. Just watch every Susan story. Because one complaint I've heard is that she's almost a different character every story. That Sometimes she's written as around about 16. Sometimes she's written like she's 11. Caroline Ford was promised that the part would have kind of an Avengers quality. And she wanted leggings and knee-high boots and was told that was unacceptable. So in the end, she's playing what she's given, but it's not what she was promised. And I think that starts to show. I don't think it's any problem with her as an actress. Was she written as a teenager, an adolescent even, because it was seen as a children's program? Yes, I think it was, again, following a format that uh, we see in Pathfinders. Of course, we see in um, Lost in Space, because that's based on the Swiss family Robinson, which is not something I know a great deal about. But again, I think we'd find that it'd be a fairly stock concept for an adventure serial that there are adults and then there's a kid who can ask questions and get in trouble. But I think Caroline Ford had been put in the impression that was not the part she was going to play. And maybe that's not the part as intended, but we can blame it entirely on the writers. I don't know uh, where we talk about David Whittaker, the script editor, whether he had any blame in this or whether there was just too much wrong Susan for him to deal with. He could only do so much rewriting. Now, if I can just raise a point of order at this stage, because you see this whole business about is Doctor Who a children's show and what have you. Well, I think it's worth pointing out that if it isn't a children's show, there isn't actually very much for children to watch on television on your average Saturday. 
because this sort of is children's television, along with maybe one other programme. These shows that we're talking about, this second series, these go out at 5.15 on a Saturday on BBC One, recently rebranded from BBC Television, because we've now got BBC Two. Okay, so here is basically your Saturday on television in 1964. BBC One opens up with a couple of adult educational programmes, and then it's into Grandstand for four hours. ITV, similarly, wasn't called World of Sport, but they're effectively doing the same thing. And then straight out of Grandstand, we go into Who, 5.15, and then out of Who, we have Jukebox Jury. On this very first day, because this story began on Halloween 1964, Marianne Faithful was one of the guests on Jukebox Jury. That then leads into the news, and that then leads into the evening on BBC television. Over on the other side, you've got a bit of a mixed bag, because I get the impression that ITV, by this point, are slightly waving the white flag in opposition to Doctor Who. Most of the regions are putting up a Canadian show called The Forest Rangers in opposition to Who. Some regions are getting a... Actually, a UK production called The Adventures of a Jungle Boy, which was made seven years earlier in Kenya, and doesn't really scream, right, we're going to take this seriously. We're, we're really going to take the fight to BBC. One or two regions are showing Stingray. Uh, and then coming out of that, you've got Thank Your Lucky Stars with Music Zone Brian Matthew. Those two programmes, so you've got some sort of action-based nonsense followed by Music on ITV, you've got Who, followed by Music on BBC. But that really is, I suppose you would say, the children's slash teenagers viewing block. Yeah, but Gary, you didn't look at, because I looked at the BBC Two listings for that first episode. You forgot to mention there was um, an Arnold Bennett adaptation, a dramatisation of East Lynn, and then Jazz 625. Ah, no. Here's the thing about this, because I did spot them, and also with Head of the Household you know, flat cap, evening paper pipe <laughs> going on. I would just like to interrupt who at a crucial point and talk over a piece of really important dialogue to ask, how long does this thing go on for? Because I spent all this money getting the aerial for 625 lines and match of the day, that newfangled program that just started this season is coming on at seven o'clock. So if this bloody thing is still on then, it's going off. I'm telling you that. Right, but no, BBC Two, strangely enough, on a Saturday afternoon, opens up with a magazine programme hosted by Gay Byrne. Obviously, later of the Late Late Show, RTE, and what have you. But it finishes at 5.15. So it's almost like BBC Two's clearing the decks and saying, you know... Beat Room. 30 minutes of non-stop beat and shake. <laughs> yeah, well, that's for those young groovers, isn't it? Because, I mean, Jukebox Jury, that's, I suppose, more sort of Sorry, but populist this, and... Gary, so- BBC Two at five fifteen. It doesn't just like okay, that's the end of this magazine program. It would appear to close down. Yes, it does. Yeah, and then start again at twenty seven minutes past six. Those were the days. Oh yeah, no, I do like Westward style, extremely precise program timings. So that's what's going on. And if you don't class Who as a kids show, then what is there during the daytime? I mean, obviously the kids are going to be watching. They are evening stuff as well. You've got things like Dixon.Green and Harfra Haynes and what have you on in the early evening on Saturdays. But as far as programmes for young people, you'd say that Doctor Who and Jukebox Jury is very clearly capturing the young audience early on in the evening. But also the programmes themselves don't alienate the older viewers. 
Yeah, fundamentally, I'd say Doctor Who is a family show. And that's not in a way of sort of getting into denial going, no, it's not a kid's show, honestly. It has to have child appeal, but they make sure that it's done in such a way that it is engaging to an adult audience. It's not going to be something that they're looking at their watches going, oh my God, how many times are they going to go through the alphabet or any of that stuff? Have you had exposure to those YouTube videos as well? <laughs> yeah, but I watched these three episodes in this story. It didn't strike me as a children's show or targeting children per se. It seemed like a slightly exciting, well-made for the time drama serial. There was nothing patronising about it in terms of trying to appeal to a younger audience. None of that. That brings me on to something. A strand that runs through British children's television is there is this mod of British children's drama made by both BBC and ITV that is kind of made on the don't add only subtract rule. So it's like we're not going to kiddify a drama. We'll just try and take out everything that would make it unacceptable in a children's time slot. I'm thinking of things like The Changes and, well, there's The Boy Merlin. I still haven't watched it all the way through Warrior Queen, which you might argue you didn't quite take enough out there. Somebody's just sliced a duck's throat open on camera. <laughs> and what's Keith Harris going to do now? <laughs> He's probably got a drawer full of them, too. Keith Harris, yeah, I don't mind you doing that, but you've ruined my watch strap. I think Doctor Who's part of that. That There have been times when I've been watching something. Uh, I was watching a thing of Dramarama Spooky. And my wife came in and said, what's this? I said, it's Dramarama, it's a children's programme. And she watched it and went, no, this is not a children's programme. A line I often use, there seem to be a lot of people working in children's television in the 60s, 70s and 80s who read M.R. James and said, the kids are going to love this. Yeah. <laughs> yes. There's a certain hard-nosed quality and it brings me back to something I think is in Doctor Who, which is there's a slightly liberal educational mindset. It's a post-war thing. But I'm also thinking it's a post-post-war... Th oh my goodness, I've just <laughs> vanished. <laughs> There's the immediate post-war. Oh my God, we made it. We're alive. Some of us are alive. Enough of us are alive. And civilization hasn't ended. And then I think there's a point where it's like, you know what, we could actually do something here. We could rebuild it slightly differently. And we get this little forward-looking thing. I associate it with sort of the end of the 50s and the beginning of the 60s. And yet the phrase that I like to grab onto is one from earlier in the 50s, New Elizabethan. Wasn't there a magazine called New Elizabethan? And it was just that idea that Britain's going to go from strength to strength in the new world. And I associate it with things like BBC Television Centre and the BBC's love of modernism. I was just on a little Twitter discussion today about the radiophonic workshop TV March, which is terrifying terrifying piece of music concrete but somebody thought yeah we can just play that at the start of the day so that was a startup theme but it just sounds mad and avant-garde and it got a lot of complaints that is what i see in doctor who probably uh there are a lot of people who are maybe reading the times educational supplement is that a... that's right yep yes again it's a good place to start so this ostensibly children's science fiction drama is an educational piece about DDT, which has its roots in a book called The Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, which is about the potential abuses and the unintended consequences 
of pesticide use. So it's, again, somebody who's read a sociological tract and said, got to share this with the 12-year-olds. They're going to be fascinated. And we call that the good old days. I mean, you know, not the good old days with capital letters, not, not Barney Collins' good old days. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I didn't realise it was, had some inspiration from an actual book. Tilt, I didn't realise that. How much do you think, in terms of just viewer interest, Doctor Who is tying in with the overall zeitgeist of the 1960s. Now, I know this obviously has been recorded in advance of this, but this episode, the story, when it begins, we're two weeks removed from the new Labour government with its talk of the white heat of technology. We're actually three days away from Lyndon Johnson's victory over Barry Goldwater. America is pursuing JFK's plan to get a man on the moon by the end of the decade. The Apollo missions are on the horizon. It's the ideal show for that particular decade and for that period of time, for that whole just idea that anything is possible if we put our minds to it. Yes, definitely. And then you start mucking about with things that you don't understand and you end up hiding inside a box of matches. <laughs> you see, that's what happens, right? When you start just prodding things you don't understand. The box of matches, which was very gingerly placed on the lawn by Farrow, along with his briefcase. I'll just pop this chocolate eclair perilously on the edge of this box. <laughs> <laughs> just on that, well, the young one's reference. Sorry to completely change the tone here or bring it down. But the thing I couldn't help thinking about when these three characters who weren't the Doctor and the Companions, the thing I couldn't help thinking about with them is their character names, which just reminded me of TV comedy shows. Obviously, Smithers from The Simpsons. Farrow, I just kept thinking of Lord Farrow, who was executed or not. Uh, on the order of Blackadder in the second series, uh, and Lady Pharaoh, of course. Gary, as you well know, there was a character called Mr. Forrester in an episode of the 1972 Bob Todd sitcom in for a penny. <laughs> <laughs> and I just couldn't get that out of my head. I just kept thinking. It's just very distracting. If you really want to drag this to comedy, there really should have been a sitcom about Burton Hilda <laughs> at the post office. There's a lot more Burton Hilda in the uh, four-part version. Oh, that they end up on the cutting room floor? Yes, they do. Because it's a lot of nonsense about Forrester is doing the old... He does it in the version that we can see. The old handkerchief over the mouthpiece. Now, hang on a minute. Let me get a handkerchief. But tell if you get a handkerchief and put it over the microphone, then we won't know who it is speaking. <laughs> you could be anybody. As used by Mr. Lucas. Okay, I have a handkerchief over the Rumble's microphone. Office. Hello, I am Mr. Farrow. And I think that D6, the pesticide, is jolly good stuff. And Ladies and gentlemen, the podcast has been hacked. <laughs> we have no idea who this is that's speaking. We apologize for this interruption to our normal service. I must now depart for the lakes of France. <laughs> oh, all right, Pharaoh. <laughs> I was going to hold this back for later on because I'm going to be mentioned later on of some of the, the other bits and pieces that are going on in the world of popular entertainment at this time. But if you're going to talk about spin-offs with different characters, then I've got to mention this just now. You see when this is all over and done with and, and what have you, we have a look at what's on that evening on the TV, you think, meh. You start looking at the guide to see what's on at the cinema, what's on at the theatre. Can I just point out, King's Theatre Glasgow, the stars from Coronation Street appear in Firm Foundations, a rip-roaring farce from the authors of Coronation Street. Fabulous. Coronation Street always spins off comedy, doesn't it? 
Indeed, and I can't find a great deal about this online. I'm not aware of there being any kind of recorded material related to this, but it does sound like Coronation Street does the rag trade on stage. So, and your man, yeah, we're going to go and see that. Uh, your man with the whistle, Pharaoh. What was the actor called? Frank Crawshaw. I looked up his IMDb, and he was in Coronation Street in '61 as Arnold Tanner, which I presume he was possibly what Elsie Tanner's dad, maybe. He was the estranged husband of Elsie Tanner and father of Linda and Dennis. I mean, I was wondering if maybe there'd been an earlier attempt in which Forrester had taken a pot shot at him, and uh, Farrow had caught it in his teeth. But slightly mistimed it, so it chipped a little bit off. I'll just mention uh, Forrester, played by Alan Tilvern, who I know best as Nicholas Warlegan in Poldark. He's got this strange mid-Atlantic thing going on, even though he's an English actor. Also played Mr. Maroon from Maroon's Cartoons in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, a film that is actually part of the Endeavour universe. <laughs> the reason I wanted to get that out of there was so that we could focus on Reginald Barrett, who plays Smithers simply because I can't see him without thinking about his appearance in Open All Hours when he advises Granville not to eat eggs. <laughs> I think the implication is that it causes lust. Because Tilt mentioned that when we were watching it, and I could immediately visualise him. I looked up his IMDb as well, and he was in um, many, many, many things. Mr. Rose, Public Eye, Softly, Softly Task Force, but also a sitcom called Mr. Pastry, so I presume that's Richard Hearn, Mr. Pastry's Pet Shop. And he played a character called Slippery Nick. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, interestingly, um, Tom from Reginald Perrin was in it as well. Tom Mark One. Tim Priest. Tim Priest, that's it. I really like Tim Priest in Out of the Trees. See how I've laid my nuts out. I think he says nuts. You know, he means as in nuts and bolts. Tyler, I gather you have some notes about Ian. Yes, so I... uh, Ian was the... Kind of the focal point for me, I guess, in these three stories. I've only seen him, obviously, in the Planet of Giants. I mean, I might be completely wrong here, but my view of Ian is that he's a pretty stolid, pragmatic, dependable sort. A bit red brick, I think, as well. He reminds me a little bit, and again, I've got a feeling I might be completely off the mark here, but he reminds me a little bit of Hastings from Poirot. He's like the heroic or the strong man in the group. So when they find themselves in peril or a sticky situation, he's the one they're getting into fights and um, saving the day in a very no-nonsense fashion. He comes across as amiable and sociable, but also, and I I believe he's a science teacher, but I imagine he's had to sort of recalibrate his 1940s, 1950s, fairly ingrained set of beliefs since meeting the Doctor and Susan and, and going on travels with them. I think only to a certain extent. Sometimes I think he can act as a surrogate Doctor. William Hartnell was allowed to have holidays, so there are certain episodes where there's no Doctor. And it's quite useful to have Ian there who knows what uh, litmus paper is and things like that. He's there to explain some science concepts when there might be too small change for the Doctor. And of course, Barbara, the history teacher, can explain some historical things as well. But yes, when I'm talking about that whole 60s mindset, I'm seeing Ian and Barbara as the kind of people who were at the BBC as well. There might be a certain amount of projection. Yeah, I wondered whether he and Barbara were a couple. And I asked you and you said no. I can't find it. I'm sure somebody's asked William Russell, who played Ian, about that. And he said no. Jacqueline Hill was interviewed and said there was something very romantic about Ian and Barbara. But yeah, the idea of them as a couple, I think that might just be purely chemistry. I'm not sure how much of it is necessarily 
in the writing. And it's just William Russell and Jacqueline Hill have a fantastic interpersonal chemistry. And William Russell makes Ian a little bit arrogant, but really lovably so. You can tell Ian thinks he's uh, he's the cool teacher. He's heard of John Smith and the Common Men. And he knows uh, that John Smith used to be the Honourable Aubrey Witt. He first started as Chris Witt and the Carolers, didn't he, Susan? I'm the cool teacher. I'm the one who'll have to leave under a cloud six months from now. <laughs> I apologise to any cool teachers listening. I'm... I didn't see him as... I saw him as being probably the sort of progressively-minded teacher who reads a lot of, you know, the fashionable modern novels like Simon Raven or whatever to prove he's well-read, but he doesn't wholly approve of half of what he reads. He's still conservative with a small c, if you know what I mean. That's my take on him. He's a conventionally handsome man who isn't necessarily beating them off with a stick, but I'm sure he would make a very, very good husband to someone like Barbara. Barbara, I think, is the one who, and I don't know what it is, maybe it's Jacqueline Hill's face, maybe it's her voice, maybe it's all of it, but she is just fantastic at suggesting a great inner life for Barbara. I don't know, you can kind of visualise almost how she votes, what she reads, where she goes. I'm going to say that she's slightly centre-left for her time, but she'd probably have concerns in a few years' time when they abolished Lord Chamberlain's office. Just concerns. You know, she's not an ideologue. What I couldn't understand about Barbara in this story was her motivation, and it was probably just to move the plot along, I guess. They come across some seeds in a little dish, I think this is just after she's fainted dead away, having seen a, a, a fly, which is a very good fly, by the way, a very convincing fly. But then I think she touches the one of the seeds, and so she's got this DN6 on her. She's contaminated. Ian says, you haven't touched the DN6, have you? And she just sort of says no, or she, or she just doesn't say anything. And, and she's given a few opportunities to tell him, but she says nothing. And I don't quite understand why. As I say, is it just... She's... Yeah, it seems like something Barbara wouldn't do. It seems wildly out of character. She is the most sensible of the group. And it's almost like whoever's writing this, I don't want to accuse anybody of sexism, but it's almost like the writing's kind of defaulted to it would be the woman who did that. In a way, it would make more sense for Ian that he's trying to be brave. He's trying not to worry Barbara. You could kind of understand his reasons. I can't even see what Barbara's reasons are in this for that. It's what I think on TV tropes they call the idiot ball. Every now and again, a character catches the idiot ball and they act stupid just so that the plot can proceed. Gary, what else was happening in October and November of 1964? Well, now this is a thing because, of course, we've got this new series of Who beginning today. However, we also had another new series beginning last night, which was Sykes on BBC One, which had very good reviews in the following day's newspapers. Also, you know the... The show that's coming up next is Jukebox Jury. And if we switch over to the other side, it's going to be Thank You Lucky Stars, which is going to be networked across all the ITV regions. So I thought it would be a fun little diversion for us to play a game of Doctor Who and his companions' top 10 preferences. It's a bit of a mouthful. I think I need to work on that title, okay? But basically, I have in front of me the top 10 singles in the UK on the day that this story started. And I would like yourselves, with your musical knowledge, to assign these to Who and his companions as to what would be on their iPod. Because let's face it, it's Doctor Who. You know, he can go whenever he wants. So he's going to have an iPod, isn't he? Maybe even an iPod Touch. Although actually finding charging points for it in, you know, the outdoors quite often is 
problematic. Ready for this? So I want names. I want names of Doctor Who and his companions. Which ones are going to be up? Which ones are going to get this a thumbs up on Jukebox Jury? Which ones thumbs down? Okay. Reverse order. Number 10 from the soundtrack of The Naked Gun. Herman's Hermits. I'm into something good. Ian likes that one. Susan likes that one. Susan likes that one. She doesn't love it. She's almost a little bit distant. She likes the tune, but she's not actually a big Herman's Hermits fan herself. She's only interested when they put out something that catches her ear. Okay, number nine. I'm not familiar with this one. One Way Love by Cliff Bennett and the Rebel Rousers. Cliff Bennett and the Rebel Rousers? Weren't they a Joe Meek group? Well, you tell me. Uh, So I'm thinking that maybe they're a little bit 1960. It's interesting looking back at the charts... Often the way things are presented are, oh, well, you know, as soon, as soon as one thing happens, the thing it replaces is gone. No, I mean, up to 1967, maybe beyond. I think the NME still had, in its end-of-year chart, best instrumental group. There was still interest in instrumental groups. Ian's pop knowledge is very slightly out of date now. Yeah, because what you're saying there, Tilt, I, I noticed that 64 was a huge year going into 65 for beach party, surf movies and the like. And I always had it in my head that those were more of an earlier 60s thing, really. But they were still very, very popular, you know, coming into the middle of the decade. Partially because in the US you get different economies of scale. So there might not be that many people interested in beach movies, but it would certainly be enough to turn a profit. So nothing so far in the top 10 that's appealed to the Doctor himself. Number 8, 12 of Never by Cliff Richard. Barbara likes that one. Number seven, we're through the Hollies. All through this so far, the Doctor's been sat there with pursed lips. <laughs> Arms crossed. Number six, walk away, Matt Monroe. Oh, he likes that. Do you think mm. so? Yeah. Number five, the Supremes, where did our love go? Susan likes that. Okay, number four, when you walk in the room by the searchers. Nobody on board the TARDIS has a strong opinion on that. I have no knowledge at all but number three, the wedding by Julie Rogers. Blimey, yes. I, I couldn't tell you anything. Okay, number two's got to provoke a reaction from all of them in some way or another, and I'm hoping that all four of them are going to be on board with this because it's a classic. Pretty Woman, Roy Orbison. Ian loves that. Ian's all about that. Is he often humming it, do you think? And does that get The doctor on... says it's good, but he prefers I drove all night and Ian and Barbara look at him. <laughs> <laughs> like, what, what, what? <laughs> And he also prefers Cindy Lauper's version. Well. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, number one, and I suspect that this is going to be Susan's preferred one. She's definitely got this in her record collection. Always something there to remind me, Sandy Shaw. The Doctor calls it a cacophony or something. Right. But I actually think the Doctor actually quite likes Sandy Shaw. Not too fast about music, but I think he's slightly enamoured with her. I'm going to say something now. Before the end of series two, we are actually going to find out what the TARDIS crew thinks of a particular record that was hurtling up the charts in 1965. We are actually going to get a conversation about pop music. And the Doctor's going to give his opinion. What were the top films, Gary? Top films for 1964. Now, this is a bit of a funny thing because it always interests me about how long it takes films to get onto TV back in this day. And you occasionally get references to this in TV shows of the time. Alan asks Rigsby, what films can you see on there in 1974? And Rigsby wheels off a list of all the duff old horror movies he's been watching recently. But 
having a wee glimpse of the films that were on in the different places, it sort of makes a bit more sense of things because you've got obviously films from 64 playing in the cinemas. A big one is The Fall of the Roman Empire, Sophia Loren and Alec Guinness. Goldfinger is out at this time. Carry On Spying, which would be a nice accompaniment to Goldfinger. And also another film from this year. And chaps, I think we've got a particularly good reason for going to see this one. The Seventh Dawn with William Holden and Susanna York. If we go to see that at La Scala in Sucky Hall Street in Glasgow. Make sure we get there 40 minutes early because then we'll get a chance to see UK Swings again. I am there! (laughs) (laughs) But the thing is, it's not just the films of 64 which are showing in 1964. Now, I don't know... I mean, I'm not talking about obviously right at this precise moment because there's no cinemas. But generally speaking, if I went out to like Cineworld or somewhere like that nowadays, I wouldn't expect to see anything other than brand new films. But yeah, at this time, in October, in November 64, you could go and see The King and I. You could see The Millionaire S with Peter Sellers and Sophia Loren, which was four years old by this point. You could see El Cid. You could see High Noon, that was made in 1952. You've got plenty of choice, and you're not just limited to what's brand new. You do get them to a certain extent over here in the US. I've noticed there are a few little second string cinemas who will have the blockbusters from a few months ago. And I think, yes, back in the 60s and before, films had a fairly long shelf life. And I know there was a famous case of The Sound of Music being played in Leeds for years. Held over is what they used to call it. It kept getting held over to the extent that the projectionist started the thing of... um, when he saw the you know little real change sign, it then became a thing of running to the back of the projection room, touching the wall, and then running back to the projector in time <laughs> to do the real change, <laughs> to set himself a little challenge. And also, at this time, in the Beatles universe, just to ground us in the Beatles universe, earlier in the year we'd had A Hard Day's Night, obviously, and I think two or three weeks after this story ends, Beatles for Sale is released, and I feel fine is released the end of November. I presume at some point, either original or modern day, Doctor Who has made some sort of reference to the Beatles. Do all of you know when the first time it would have been? In season two. Oh! You've spoiled the surprise now, Gary. Yeah. Oh, dear. Oh, come on, though. That must have, you know, piqued your interest. Oh, yeah. We now stand a better chance of actually finishing this project because you've got to keep watching until that point. But you'll have to keep that story to the end, even if it's not the end. (laughs) We're doing this backwards. We really should have done what was popular in 1964 at the beginning. And another thing that I should have done really at the beginning, probably of most interest to Gary, this serial was shot in TC4. Oh, lovely, lovely. Studio 4 Television Centre. Television Centre had the wide-angle lenses needed to make this convincing. There had been Doctor Who stories shot before in Television Centre. Doctor Who started out in Lime Grove, of course. But this had special requirements that Television Centre could meet. I think the next serial is shot at Riverside Studios. It really needs to go around the houses. In the 70s, there's even a little trip to Pebble Mill. Can I just give a shout-out, as they say? Give props to the prop boys on this. Because the, the sets and the actual props were fantastic. I was very impressed by them. They really earn their corn. The, the fly, the dead ant, um, the big batch box, and also 
the huge plug hole in the giant sink. The sink was particularly impressive. For the budget they must have been on. And, and I also, I wondered whether it was a happy accident that the plot of the story was, this was centered around a, a pesticide. So it meant that they could have a lot of dead insects, which negated the requirement for, I guess, insects with moving parts that, or even costumes. So all they had to do was basically construct large flies and, and ants out of, I don't know, plywood, bakelite and superglue and string. They didn't need them to move, which must have been useful. So just looking at the release date for the Pink Panther, that came out <laughs> March 64. Well, no, I'm just, th- I'm just thinking they left Earth in November 63. Does that mean that upon finding a dead ant, Ian and Susan do not have the knowledge to make the Pink Panther joke? Do you know what's really weird? You mentioned the Pink Panther there. Did you know that the Pink Panther was actually happening in real life the day that this story started? Oh, go on. Right then. So, the day before this story was broadcast, the Star of India, the world's largest gem-quality blue star sapphire, 563 carats, believed to be some 2 billion years old, was pinched from the American Museum of Natural History, along with more than 20 other precious gemstones and diamonds. So the story goes, the thieves entered the museum during the day via a toilet window. The Star of India itself was protected by its own alarm, but the alarm was either not working or deactivated during the robbery. And whilst this story would have been going out, episode one, the hunt would have been on for the perpetrators. However, for the following day, the perpetrators were arrested. And indeed, one of the three men led the police to a locker in Miami where the Star of India was recovered. But I'd like to think that the robbery itself was as entertaining as that in The Return of the Pink Panther. And also, I would like to think that the police in Miami actually called for a famous detective to come over from France to help them with their investigation. So they just sent me looking for the release date for Top Carpy. That was 64, wasn't it? Yeah. Which was actually already out. Yeah, it was already out when that happened. I thought, oh, I wonder if that's some sort of cash in on the news story but there you go speaking of films the sequence in which the doctor and susan are in the huge plug hole it was uh, inspiration for that pixar film gary you know, a monster sink oh ah <laughs> oh. i don't know if i can go on now <laughs> <laughs> so tyler how much do you know about the doctor as a person so far based on this on this viewing he is Kindly, thoughtful, impatient. <laughs> He's very loving towards his granddaughter. He obviously values uh, Ian and Barbara. I'm just curious if at any point you're going to say, oh, oh, I wish I knew every single biographical detail about this character. In fact, I wish they actually started rewriting the past so they even newer biographical detail. That's just a personal thing for me that people say the, the great thing about early Doctor was the mystery around the character. How do we bring that back? And then people just still keep stripping the mystery away. Well, I think we've finished here. Nobody got anything to add? I just am intrigued and keen to see more, for sure. As I said at the beginning, I've always been a little bit so-so when it comes to science fiction and fantasy. But based on this viewing, um, I am looking forward to seeing more, for sure. Excellent. Gary? Well, I did inquire earlier on, off-camera, 
as to whether we knew the doctor's precise date of birth. And I'm advised by yourself, Tilt, that we don't. No, and if we did, it's been changed. I see. So we have to just go on November the 24th, really, don't we? Yeah, I'd, I'd say that would work. Okay, Lord Luck in the Daily Express has the following horoscope for the Doctor, right before all this kicks off. Utilise your spare time well, for this is a weekend when industry will be very rewarding. Seek out new contacts. Talk over ideas with those around you. I think it's fair to say that he actually does all those things. Absolutely. One last thing I want to mention about this is the glee that the Doctor takes at the prospect of starting a fire. I don't know, it's almost like once they get out of the place, oh, well, I've maimed somebody for life, so that's, I've done what I set out to do. Oh, I love that bit where those shards just went straight. Oh, fantastic. Wasn't he really pleased once? I can't remember which story it was now. Wasn't he really pleased with the prospect that will of a come, volcanic eruption? That will eruption? come. That will come. We're going to have the Doctor laughing at fire again. That's one of the reasons <laughs> I just wanted to highlight this. It's like, hmm, yeah. <laughs> one thing I just wanted to chip in with, being the father of two formerly small children. When I was watching this, there was a, a couple of scenes that made me wonder whether Roger Hargreaves had ever seen this story on the television. Because there's his books, Mr. Small and Little Miss Tiny, in which in the latter book, for example, she is in peril with a big cat. And there's a, there's a full page picture of the, the huge cat's face looking at the tiny Little Miss Tiny. And Mr. Small had to tackle a huge matchbox. Literary influences. Any murders? <laughs> ah, falls down there. <laughs> but I think Mr. Small falls down a crack at a pavement. Ah, right. Excellent. So uh, next time we will be at World's End. It's goodbye from me. I suppose it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. The Knights of Jaffa. <laughs>